It's Friday, January 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. You might have heard of the placebo effect, but what about its evil twin, the nocebo effect? It's when a person experiences negative symptoms from an inert pill or treatment, sometimes even from verbal suggestions. Studies are currently being done to better understand the placebo and nocebo effects. Shayla Love, science writer advice, joins us to discuss how it all works. Next, it's called Munchausen by Internet, the condition of faking illness online. It's a form of factitious disorder, a mental disorder where people fake illness or actually make themselves sick to get sympathy and attention. But one place online that experiences this at higher rates is in the cancer community. People in online cancer support groups are routinely outed as healthy. It seems almost impossible to think that someone could lie about such a serious illness, but it happens a lot. And those that offered their love, sympathy, and support often feel betrayed. Roisin Lanigan, contributor to The Atlantic, joins us for why the internet has a cancer-faking problem. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The nocebo effect, which is when you feel bad from nothing, I've always felt like is completely accessible to me at any moment in time. (laughs) And so ever since I was little, if you had a doctor who said, be careful of these side effects, I would immediately start to feel them right away. Just like the thought of food poisoning can give me a stomach ache. And so I felt like the nocebo effect was something that I could really easily tap into. Joining us now is Shayla Love, science writer at Vice. We've all heard about the placebo effect. It's when a person feels better from a drug or treatment that really doesn't have any pharmacological, physiological properties. We're going to be talking a little bit more about the nocebo effect, which is uh, sometimes referred to as placebo's evil twin. It's when a person experiences negative symptoms from an inert pill or treatment or even from verbal suggestions or observations. Tell us why you started looking into the nocebo effect. I've written about the placebo effect before, and I've read about it a lot, and I've always found it completely fascinating, the idea that people can make themselves feel better by taking something that is essentially nothing. It has no active ingredient. But as much as I've always loved the placebo effect and loved to learn about it, I felt like it was sort of inaccessible to me. That said, the nocebo effect, which is when you feel bad from nothing, I've always felt like is completely accessible to me at any moment in time. (laughs) And so ever since I was little, if you had a doctor who said, be careful of these side effects, I would immediately start to feel them right away. Just like the thought of food poisoning can give me a stomach ache. And so I felt like the nocebo effect was something that I could really easily tap into. And if it was placebo effects twin or evil twin, how could I access one and not the other? So that led me into wondering why was I susceptible to one and not the other and what's really going on and what's the mechanisms of these effects. Yeah. And I think a lot of people feel that way too. It's that whole notion of you're talking about somebody being sick or nauseous and then you're like, oh man, I'm starting to feel something in my stomach too. I think you even noted in your article, a lot of people even suspect some of this stuff that was happening in Cuba to some of the diplomats and they were hearing weird buzzing noises and then they started getting all of these physical symptoms because of it. Some people have even played it up to it being part of the nocebo effect, maybe not anything malicious that anybody was doing. It might have just been this. I think a lot of people can relate to that. And on the other side, the placebo effect, you talk about how you feel it might be inaccessible to you. Let's say people that have an affinity for crystals and, you know, they say I get my rose quartz and then I'm starting to feel a lot better, a lot more calm and things like that. And Some people just think it's BS because maybe they can't access that kind of placebo effect from themselves. So I think it's very relatable. 
relatable, these two notions. Yeah, crystals are a great example because I have lots of friends who love their crystals and I think crystals are very pretty, but I've gone out and had people say, this one's really going to make you feel really good and make you feel awake. And I've taken these things home and just kind of waited and like crickets. You know, like nothing's happening. <laughs> right. And this was part of why I got so curious about this. Like, why do some people just have this main line to the placebo effect that I didn't seem to have? And so what have you learned through your research? Because they use placebos on a lot of clinical trials and studying other medicines. So put together some of the dots for us on this. I guess the first thing to say is that the placebo and the nocebo effect are real effects. It's not just in somebody's mind. Both of them can cause real physiological changes. Because of that, for a long time, we've actually tried to get rid of the placebo effect when we study medicine in clinical trials. Because how can you be sure if a medicine is working if the placebo effect can be so pronounced? So we have placebo-controlled trials so that we can give somebody something that's inactive and see if the person who gets the active medication is actually doing better than the placebo person. And only if the person who gets the medication does better than placebo do we determine that that's a, a good medication. But scientists now are starting to rethink that a little bit. And they're saying if the placebo effect is so powerful, maybe we shouldn't get rid of it. Then maybe we should try to use it to our advantage, right? Like if this is something that can really help us. And, and likewise, if the nocebo is really making people worse, we should try to understand that. When you go to the doctor, if they tell you that something is going to hurt, if people expect that something is going to hurt, it can actually amplify the pain that people feel. So that's important. We need to understand how these effects work if we're going to understand where they're coming into play in, in a medical context. So what I discovered after learning that these effects are very real is that they're probably not exactly like twins. Rather than nocebo being the evil twin, it's more like the grumpy cousin or something. It's, <laughs> the mechanisms are slightly different. So the nocebo effect has a lot more to do with anxiety than the placebo effect does. And there's some evidence that in the brain, there's some slightly different pathways that they take. So we can't really think of them as identical forces. So it would make sense that somebody like me could be really susceptible to the nocebo effect, but not to the placebo effect. Yeah, and it makes sense, this notion of anxiety. It's like the first thing I thought of is when kids are getting shots and they start crying because it hurts, yet you know, they haven't been pricked yet. This anxiety, it amplifies the pain. So you're feeling these experiences before they even happen. So that totally makes sense. And on the other side, you talk about how the placebo a lot of times is a result of learned experiences. If I've had a great experience with my doctor before they've helped me out or the medication I've been taking really helped out, then if I'm telling you, hey, this is also going to work, then you might get a placebo effect out of that. Part of what they're trying to do and learning more about this is kind of pairing active drugs with placebos and maybe give you a drug for a little bit that is working, then wean you off, give you a placebo, then switch back and forth. That way you get that extra benefit of it. Context matters. When you give somebody a placebo pill, the pill doesn't doesn't really matter. Like we, we associate a placebo with a physical pill, but it really could be anything. What matters more is your beliefs, your history with medicine, your history with pain, your history with doctors. And so for me, I learned a lot really about myself. I grew up in a family of scientists. Everybody's really medically oriented. And so if something started to go wrong in the body, immediately people could start offering to you, here are all the things that might be wrong with you. And it's kind of an anxious, fraught setting almost immediately. So it makes sense that I would be somebody who would be prone to, once I started feeling something or heard a suggestion, that that's immediately where my mind would go and sort of bring about the nocebo effect. You're conditioned to it as a kid before you even knew it, really. 
Exactly. So the researchers that I talked to said that even if I'm prone to the nocebo effect because of my experiences and the context in which I was raised, anybody's body and brain can learn to accept and express the placebo effect. So you mentioned a great example, which is mixing in a placebo pill alongside an active drug. So for pain, this is really promising because you could give somebody a painkiller for two days and then give them a placebo on the third day. And you don't even have to lie. You can tell them that that's what you're doing. There's no deception involved. But their body will kind of be conditioned to the response. So when you take that placebo pill at the same time that you took the active pills, it still provides the same effect. And suddenly you're taking less of a medication, which is always the goal is not to be taking things. And with the opioid crisis, if you could take placebos for pain instead of an opioid for pain, that would be a a great outcome for a lot. I suggest everybody go out and read it. The Power of the Nocebo Effect. Thank you very much. Shayla Love, science writer at Vice. Thanks so much. Cancer is really just seen as the boogeyman when it comes to the medical world. Like It's like the word that you don't want to hear when you go into a doctor's surgery or if you have anything wrong with you. You know, you sort of people think, you know, like, oh, at least it's not cancer. Joining us now is Roisin Lanigan, contributor to The Atlantic. We're going to be talking about this notion of Munchausen by Internet. It's the condition of faking illness online. It's a, a form of the uh, factitious disorder, which is the disorder formerly known as Munchausen syndrome, where people are faking illnesses. Sometimes they actually make themselves sick for sympathy and attention. And one place in particular online where this is really kind of becoming a problem more and more are with cancer support groups. The internet has this big cancer faking problem. So tell us a little bit more about this, Rasheen. I discovered this problem, I guess, firsthand. Last year, I was going through cancer treatment myself, so I was a member of this Facebook support group. And one day there was this post from another member who said, oh, there's this lady, Marissa Marshand, and she was presenting as someone who was terminally ill and was going to die, but it turned out that she was completely healthy and she'd been arrested. And it was just it was just quite shocking to me that this existed. It was weird because it had been sort of cross-posted over these different Facebook groups and a lot of women were commenting saying, oh, you know, this is the third time this has happened in my cancer journey or like this is so sick and shocking. So it seemed like although it was shocking to me, it was actually quite common. It happened quite a lot. So it was something that I wanted to find out more about and to find out why these people did it especially because a lot of the people who were posting they were saying things like oh you know it's sick why would they do this saying that they were you know heartless or right. freaks or whatever but you know like that that doesn't really explain it either like there is different motivations for these people especially when you know you're not doing it as like a fundraiser you're not doing it for fraud for financial fraud you're doing it for attention right. so I just really wanted to delve into that and, and find out more about why they did it which is as you mentioned linked to this issue of monetizing by internet well, let's uh, start with that uh, example you gave, you you mentioned Marissa Marshand, and tell that part of the story as an example for how this stuff happens. She joined one of these groups. She said she was terminally ill and she was a grieving single mom. She even posted pictures of herself bald from chemotherapy. She was wearing an IV drip in some of these pictures. And instantly the outpouring of support and love from these groups, because that's what these groups are all about. They're made for support to help each other. And people are giving her sympathy, money, gifts, 
wigs to help since she had no hair, things like that. And you mentioned that she got arrested. There was a point in the group where she stopped posting is because she got arrested because she got found out for lying about this whole stuff. She was defrauding some GoFundMe pages. Yeah. Obviously, when someone stops posting in a group that's for cancer survivors, people going through cancer treatment, you assume the worst, especially when they have said, oh, you know, my diagnosis is now terminal. I don't have any treatment options left. And these were groups that were really, really engaged with their members' lives, like especially people like Marissa, who, who posted, who was really active. Stephanie, who I spoke to, who, who was the admin of that particular group, you know, she organised things like vigils for women who were at the end of their life and didn't have anyone there with them. So, you know, it's really, really dedicated to helping people and to providing this sort of community. So when Marissa stopped posting, Stephanie took it upon herself to reach out to her family just to confirm that she, well, they assumed that she died so that then they could say, the funeral's being held here. This is where you can pay your respects. This, this is who you can send your cards to. And she found out that Marissa was, in fact, healthy, had been arrested for fraud of the GoFundMe, as you mentioned. And that's when she sort of reported back to the group and everything unraveled from there. What are the emotions that go through this? Because on the outside, people that are not part of these communities or these groups, you hear about a story about this and you just think these must be some of the most evil people in the world. You know, how could you fake such a serious illness and try to get away with it just for sympathy. Mm -hmm. But for people that are in these groups that are going through their own struggles with cancer or family members that are going with it, how are they reacting when these people get outed? I think that the reaction is similar, but so much more visceral because, as you said, like these are people who are dealing with these sort of things every day. You know, when I saw that, that post, I was dealing with that every day. I was dealing with hair loss and nausea and all the other, you know, just the uncertainty of knowing whether or not you're going to be OK. So it's the same kind of disgust and anger and just disbelief that you have when you read a story about someone pretending they have cancer when they're actually healthy, but on a much easier scale, like these people are so upset about this. And especially because in the case of Marissa and other people in these Facebook support groups, they feel like they're friends with this person. They feel like they know them and they've reached out. They've given them money or, as you mentioned, wigs or just emotional support. So there's a huge sense of betrayal that you've given your time and money and emotional support to someone who just lied to your face, essentially. Why do people lie about cancer in particular? What makes the, this particular illness, I hate to say this way, popular, but popular for these people mm-hmm. to, to try to take advantage of? Well, it's interesting because Munchausen syndrome, factitious disorder, in the real world, it kind of takes on any illness. You know, you can pretend to have anything when you have this, but on the internet, it seems to be mostly cancer. And I think that's because cancer is really just seen as the boogeyman when it comes to the medical world like it's like the word that you don't want to hear when you go into a doctor's surgery or if you have anything wrong with you you know you sort of people think you know like oh at least it's not cancer so I think because cancer is seen as the worst of the worst people know that you're going to get the most attention for this and cancer is because it's so prevalent because everyone knows someone who's had cancer or they've had cancer themselves there's so much support online for it because people want to help so they want to find more information so there's a huge audience for these people there's a huge audience for them to get support and attention in saying they have cancer and also because cancer is so well known it's quite easy 
in a way to pretend that you have it, especially if you have seen someone else suffer with it. You right. you know, like like Marissa knew that, you know, if you have no hair, people are going to assume you have cancer. If you're on a drip in the hospital and you say you're having chemo, then why would you lie about that? It's such an extreme, extreme thing to lie about that people sort of take you at face value. Yeah, and you can draw it out for a long time too because uh, exactly, a lot of the yeah. symptoms don't always present themselves immediately. So when you're in these groups and online communities, what does a group do when they suspect that somebody might be lying when they, you know, things just aren't adding up? How do they go about finding the truth out about some of these people? It's a really traumatic experience when evidence does present itself that people are lying because, as I said, like these groups exist solely for the purpose of giving people support. So you want to take people at face value and you want to believe the best of them. So when it seems that things maybe aren't adding up, it does take several members going to the admin and saying, you know, like, oh, they've said this, they've said this, something isn't right here. And in the case of Marissa, the admin took it upon herself to contact other family members. And that's happened in other cases too, that they've gone to a sister or a husband and said, your wife, your sister, your friend is telling us all this stuff. Is it true? And quite often they'll say, no, it's a lie. And one of the Um, things that happens too is uh, some of these people will often post on more than one group. They don't necessarily just mm-hmm. pick the one. Uh, so they're kind of, uh, whether it's an alias or they use the same names a lot of times, some people will often cross post in other groups to try to say, hey, do this person claiming to do this as well. So there's this little bit of detective work that has to go through it to try to find these people. Yeah, you sort of have to become an amateur detective yourself and then take on the burden of going through all these other communities that this person has been in and lied to and taking on the responsibility of telling all those other people that they've come in connection with that they were wasting your time, basically. So it's, it's a huge burden that people take upon themselves to do this and to make sure that the people in those groups are telling the truth, basically. What do health experts and psychologists say about why people do this? I mean, is it just strictly for the sympathy and the attention? It's such an unknown, as it were, in, in like psychiatry circles. Like I spoke to Dr. Mark Feldman, who was the person who discovered or like coined the term Munchausen by Internet back in 2000. And he said, you know, there's there's no study that shows how widespread this is because of the nature of the Internet. Like the Internet is just so vast that it's impossible to get a real handle on why people do this or how many people do it. But I I think personally it's like it's very linked to social media and how you can get huge amounts of sympathy for posting about bad things that happen to you. Like even I know from personal experience when I posted about finishing chemo or going into the hospital, people are very quick to reach out and say, you know, I'm here for you, I support you. And if you have this mental disorder, like that can be incredibly addictive to know that you then have that never-ending support if you're ill. The last thing I just wanted to ask you, you did mention that you went through cancer treatments and in your article you mentioned that it was the hardest thing you've ever done, but it was also the time in your life when you had the most support. How has your journey gone and, and where are you now? So I was diagnosed with breast cancer in February last year and like as I said in the piece I was 26 I didn't have any history of it in my family so it was a real shock and I turned to online to get that support which is why I discovered this issue but in terms of like my own journey last year I had whole heaps of treatment so I had chemotherapy and surgery and radiotherapy and then towards the end of last year I found out that I had NED which is basically like cancer speak for no evidence of disease in your body which is great news Yeah, Um, and I finished active treatment now so I'm just sort of, uh, you know, you have to kind of keep taking tablets and keep an eye on it for five years. But, you know, touch wood, everything's looking much better than it did last year, which is great news. Yeah, that's great news. And we wish you nothing but continued health. 
Roisin Lanigan, contributor to The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.